I have to say, I feel so grateful to be alive and to wake up every morning and get to see what unfolds in this crazy world of ours and this beautiful life of mine. Um, it really shook me out of a, a different place where I was and uh, put my feet back on the ground with real gratitude and the ability to see the world anew again. Gail Newell is a cancer survivor. As of last June, she is now officially in remission, but she's been fighting a rare gynecological cancer for the last several years. She is the mother of three adult children, and in the next few weeks will be getting married to her partner, Kelly. Gail is also a physician. At this point in her career, she's delivered about 10,000 babies in the U.S., in Africa, and in other places around the world. She's also a Mennonite. And in our conversation, she and I talk about how painful and difficult it has been to navigate being in a same-sex relationship and being asked to surrender her membership in her church. So suffice to say that Gail lives a very full life, professionally, socially, and we literally had to schedule this interview between her trip to attend Burning Man in the desert and spend two weeks on a live-aboard scuba boat somewhere in the South Pacific. She's a truly amazing woman who has been a leader and a trailblazer in lots of ways. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Feel free to respond to this interview through the comments section on our website, parentingreimagined.org. You can also post your comments to our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening. This is Parenting Reimagined a place where the conversation goes beyond what we do as parents, and we take the time to consider what parenting teaches us, how it transforms us, and what being parents means for the landscape of our inner lives. I am Sherry Walling. Would you begin by introducing yourself and saying a bit about your family? My name is Gail Newell. I'm a physician, so it officially would be Gail Newell, MD, with an MPH for a master's in public health. I am a mom of three children, the last of which has just left the nest, at least for now. My oldest is 34 soon to be 35. He's a dentist in the Palm Springs area. And I have an almost 20-year-old son who's in college at Menlo College, south of San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and a daughter who's just left to start at New York University, and she's 19. And I'm married at heart to my partner of 14 years now, Kelly Beingesser. And uh, we're going to get legally married next month in a big church wedding. So I'm really excited about that. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And you have been partners in work as well as in life. Is that true? That's true. We've actually been friends for a long time. She moved to Fresno in 1989 to start residency at the... Fresno Residency Program, UCSF affiliated. So she was starting as a new intern in 1989, and I was a senior resident in OBGYN. 
And so I was actually her teacher for a few years. Hmm. And um, so, but we were close friends for many, many years, went into business together with another uh, female OBGYN physician in 1998 and formed Fresno Women's Medical Group. We were just business partners and friends at that point and then became uh, more than that a couple of years later as we found our friendship deepening into something more. And you already had children as you made that transition. How how was that sort of talking with your kids about this new relationship and sort of the new shape of your family? Uh, well, my oldest son uh, was a teenager at that point, and he was very open and welcoming um, to the idea. My And the younger two were quite young. I remember the day when I decided to tell the youngest two about our relationship, and we um, had gone to the circus. I think they were four and five at the time, and um, we were at McDonald's afterwards for a treat kind of lunch, and I talked to them about it then, and they whispered together and said that they had a question, and um, they said, if you get married, who's going to give who the ring? That was their question. <laughs> so very practical. Kind of level. Yes, very practical. That was uh, interesting. an interesting transition. And, of course, they had also been living through a divorce process with their dad. Uh, many years of transition for all three of the kids. Yeah. What have you particularly enjoyed about mothering your kids? Well, as they constantly tease me about, um, I have dragged them to the far corners of the earth and onto medical mission trips with me and through museums all over the world and historical sites. And um, I've really felt that this was a, a huge gift that my parents gave me to do that kind of traveling and art exposure and history exposure that I got, and I wanted to pass that on to my kids. So that's something that we've really enjoyed uh, together. I think even though they tease me about it a lot, that they really appreciate it as well. And I hope yeah. I've infected them all with the travel bug. Hmm. So you, speaking of travel, you have been all over the world and then have done some professional work all over the world. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, why you maybe chose to do working trips abroad and then maybe how those experiences have changed you. Well, I come from a Mennonite background and grew up hearing missionary stories from all over the world when missionaries would come back to the U.S. on furlough. And then part of their job was to travel to the different churches and report on their work overseas. And um, I also had several... um, aunts and uncles who were busy doing that kind of missionary work all over the world. So I I kind of lived and breathed that ethic, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and belief system as I was growing up. And some of my strongest female role models were missionary wives and missionary women who had uh, been able to really have a sense of power um, and self in the mission field in a way that perhaps they would not have had being in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up and seeing 
my other Mennonite relatives at home. So I mm-hmm. think I really grew to admire those women in particular who ha- who were in the mission field and doing that kind of work and the things they were able to accomplish and the change in the world that I was able to see them making. So they were an inspiration for me. Hmm. Did you take away from those experiences things that shaped the way that you parent? Um, from my own mission experiences, do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been parenting all of my adult life, so I think I've been learning to parent as I've learned, as I've grown up, as I've come into okay. myself as an adult and as I've grown. So I think my kids have learned along with me, as mm-hmm. has Kelly. Yeah, life is... um a learning experience, <laughs> a grand adventure, I'll have that to say. <laughs> and I'd also say about my um, work overseas that I can't imagine that I've given more than I've gotten out of those experiences. Mm-hmm. In other words, I don't see myself at all as as a missionary in the sense of the word of um, going to serve or going to give um, or going to teach or a better way, but more as a reciprocal kind of relationship building um, venture, mm. venture and adventure. So I've gotten so much from from my service work overseas. Definitely been full of rewards. Yeah. I'm sort of impacted by what it must be like to have been present for the moment for thousands of women when they become mothers or when they, you know, become mothers again, as you in your career as an obstetrician have helped lots of women and their partners through the birth process. I I guess I'm just sort of wondering, like, what's that, what's that like? I know you approach it, I'm sure, very medically, but do you ever kind of stop and think, wow, like, I can't believe I get to be in this moment with these people? Oh, I think that all the time. And I feel so fortunate to be able to be part of that experience in people's lives. I've gotten to deliver over 10,000 babies in my career. Wow. And it is still, I mean, I, I was working with the residents this weekend and helping them learn how to deliver babies. And um, it's magic. To Every birth still, to me, is magic. I'm, I would guess I would call myself more of a midwife at heart than a physician, I just love normal, uncomplicated vaginal deliveries. Those are my favorite. And to be able to really focus on the natural process that's happening and watching that family come together, it's it's almost beyond words. Hmm. And I know the mothers in your audience uh, and you as a mother understand that. Um, yeah. That kind of magic that happens. And you've seen that both in the States in your practice, but then in other countries. And I'm I'm wondering if it's felt different to be, you know, in Africa supporting a mother versus in Central California. Yes and no. Um, There's a lot in common. Um, Humanity worldwide, I think, has more in common than, than we sometimes think. So that same mother-child bonding, that same bonding of the mother and father, the coming together of the family. It's such a special and intimate time in families' lives. 
It's also a time when the parents, the family's minds are really open and ready to just soak up any new information and new experiences that they have. So it's a, it's been a privilege to be able to be part of that. Hmm. Um, being involved with deliveries in places like Congo, or I've worked with the Taramara Indians in central Mexico, there, um, the infant mortality rate in some parts of those communities is reaches 50%. So you see the mothers, the parents, with a sense of hesitancy to actually get too attached or to bond too much to this new baby um, because they know. They know that it, it might be just a glimmer for them. It's just a brief relationship. So it's quite different than than what we hear where we all assume, wrongly, but we all assume that we're going to have a happy, healthy, normal newborn baby as opposed to Congo where there's this, especially the remote villages where I've worked where you almost assume that that's not going to happen. Yeah, that you're lucky or it's rare if it does. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Or there may be the concern of one more mouth to feed um, what if it's the wrong gender? What if it's another girl not so helpful? Or what if it's a boy who's going to be trouble? Mm. <laughs> Some different concerns when you're worried about survival. And you may be um, more attached to that that last phrase about worrying about survival as you have been battling cancer. I was diagnosed in August of 2009 with a rare gynecologic cancer. So, of course, as an OBGYN, that's the kind of cancer I would have had, I guess. <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> Ironic. Um, I was given a rough figure of a 50-50 chance of surviving three years beyond my completion of treatment. And so I, I had a almost a full year of treatment. It ended in June of 2010. So this June was my three years. And um, at this point, there's no evidence of any cancer. Um, okay. So that was an exciting day. I didn't realize how much that that date was kind of hanging over my head because when I got to this June, it really, I had a big sense of a need to celebrate. You were tracking time more than you realized. I guess I was. Uh, you know, I I was feeling pretty proud of myself that I was living, you know, one day at a time. Um, but when I hit that landmark, it felt really important to me. How did you handle cancer as a family? Hmm. Well, how did you talk to your kids about what you were experiencing and those kinds of things? It happened, the diagnosis happened quite suddenly, and um, there wasn't a lot of time to talk. We'd been traveling, having fun as a family in New York City, and my uh, right leg all of a sudden got enormous. And um, mm -hmm. between, I just kept dragging my leg around with me and uh, in New York and trying to pretend like nothing was happening, and between seeing art and shows and biking around and that kind of thing. I, Kelly and I would be madly Googling what could this be, trying to figure it out, and soon realized it was some kind of obstruction and either 
the reported kind of events were parasitic or cancer, and we were joking around between the two of us and saying, oh, well, you just came back from Congo. It's probably a worm, but we knew it wasn't. (laughs) Within two days, I had a scan that showed a mass, and two days later, I was in the Bay Area having surgery, so it, it happened very quickly. And um, I was diagnosed at the time of surgery and was pretty much out of it at that time since I was post-op. So Kelly had the responsibility of communicating with the kids and my parents, and um, she she did the dirty work. And then we had a year of treatment to process together as a family. The teenagers, younger at the time, I think we had a pretty good, strong sense of denial, like most teenagers do. Mm-hmm. and um, that served their purpose, and it was good for them at the time. My older son was busy in school, wasn't in town. He worried a lot more about me. Um, but I had really good care from Kelly, and my sister was available for most of that year and very helpful while Kelly went to work. My mother lives nearby as well, so I had a tremendous amount of support. What did that feel like as a mother? I mean, for for you, for your own thought life, knowing that you, you know, may not make certain events with your kids. Yeah, that was definitely my biggest concern through all the years of treatment and the years of recovery since. I really wanted to make sure that my kids were launched into adulthood um, and stay alive for that. I knew Mm -hmm. they'd be okay without me, so I think it was more of a selfish desire to make sure that I made it a few years to see them get that far in their lives. I think I feel a sense of relief not only that I am in remission now, but also that my children are all, at least right now, out of the nest and and working toward their, their adulthood. So I'm very grateful for that. Yes, it's good news. So you talked about your upbringing in the Mennonite tradition and your identity as a Mennonite, certainly while you were growing up. And I guess I'm wondering how that tradition has shaped the way that you parent. I think it has in good ways and bad ways. (laughs) Um, I have mixed feelings about the tradition itself, although the congregation in which I grew up, um, very open-minded, considered, at least at the time the congregation was formed in the early 60s, the the young radical Mennonite brethren really were willing to push the envelope and and talk about anything. So I grew up hearing very open-minded discussions. And I think I was somewhat protected from the greater structure of the Mennonite Church which and the Mennonite Brethren Church, which quite conservative and restricted, but I didn't really realize that growing up in the church family that I did. I had great role models of parenting, not only in my own parents, but in the other families within our church. But I also did feel that I was different, even as a as a young girl, I felt like I knew that I could never, you know, just, if that's a word, a fair word, be a stay-at-home mom. I knew that I needed to do something more than that, and I had very, very few role models 
in women um, anywhere in my life that were outside of the home. So I I was really hungry for that kind of uh, role model, and um, I saw it in some of my teachers at school. Um, I had an aunt who recently um, died who was a very important figure in my life. She was a professional woman, a businesswoman from the time I was very young, told me, you can do anything, you can be anything you want to be. So very inspiring to me. So you got kicked out of the Mennonite church? I did. Well, sort of. (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) Um, My kids, when before they knew, my younger two children were telling people that I got dismembered. And um, that actually (laughs) is a very accurate term for how it felt. Mm. Um, I really felt and feel, continue to feel like I was dismembered by the process. Like you lost an arm or a I leg? Lost, or... Oh, I, I lost all my limbs in the process. <laughs> uh, it was a very difficult process. So I had been a member of my congregation and of the Mennonite Brethren Church since I was 14 years old when I was baptized and joined the church at that time. And um had been an active member and attender and leader within my own congregation. After my divorce and after my relationship with Kelly became more public, there was increasing talk, not so much in my own congregation, at least not publicly, but within the greater Mennonite church political structure. And Kelly and I had a commitment ceremony in 2004, and although it was private and with our immediate families only, at that time the the greater church political body decided they needed to take action because not only was I dabbling in a same-sex relationship, but now I had committed myself to a same-sex relationship. So that was felt to be inconsistent with membership in the Mennonite Brethren Church. Hmm. So the active commitment to Kelly actually made it worse than if we had just been living together, which is kind of ironic. Uh, But I understand from their point of view, too. The greater Mennonite Brethren political body, the um, Mennonite Brethren Conference of North America, approached the pastors in my congregation and said that I needed to have my membership revoked. And there was pushback from my own congregation, and my congregation asked for a time for there to be a process, and the conference agreed, and they sent an observer to watch the process, so he was involved in the process as well. I need to give my church family, my my Mennonite congregation, huge kudos, because they took this process very serious, seriously. Mm. It was um, a two-year process, and they read books and had speakers come in, and they had days of fasting and prayer and many congregational discernment meetings. There was input for everybody, but finally the conference demanded that they bring it to a vote or make a final decision, and the vote was um, just over 50-50 that I have my membership removed. I actually didn't get fully dismembered, but I got demoted to a different category of membership, which took away any kind of leadership 
potential or position and kind of put me into an observer status. That's officially where I still stand at this point with that congregation. And how does that all feel at this point? Uh, even now, all these years later, it's, it feels pretty raw. I think it's been mm-hmm. about six and a half years now since that decision was made. And um, I don't feel like there's been any kind of reconciliation or any kind of efforts at healing. During the two-year process, my kids left to start going to the Unitarian Church. Kelly followed them at the time that, that I was voted out. And I stayed on for well over a year um, attending with my mom. I was the only of her children still there. And it's a very important congregation to her. So I felt some obligation to be with her and to try to hang in there with my church family. But eventually I felt that I needed to join my family uh, in their Sunday worship. I went over and started attending the Unitarian Church and felt immediately at home. They're an open and welcoming and affirming congregation, and it's been wonderful. And I joined there a year ago. And is that where you'll be celebrating your big church wedding? Yeah, so October 19th, Kelly and I are getting married, and it's going to be a big event, a big white wedding, and it's Mm. at the UU Church. And who is going to give who the ring? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've already both had rings since our 2004 commitment ceremony, so I think we're going to take them off long enough to get them shined and polished for the new day and then put them right back on, and we both have rings. (laughs) Good deal. (laughs) So you built your career really in these intimate spaces of women's lives, um, helping them have babies, helping them care for their bodies. I guess I'm kind of wondering how that sits with, you know, these very kind of traditionally masculine views of God. Um, I have to say that my relationship with my higher power has been an ongoing process through my entire life. I I remember even as five-year-old already questioning that relationship, even at a very young age. And I I think I've never stopped questioning and challenging. That feels like something I was born with. I hope someday I come more at peace with that relationship, but it's uh, it's still been a real struggle for me, I have to say. Uh, losing my membership in the Mennonite Church was uh, very difficult for me and called into question much of my belief system. And before that, my divorce really did too. Completely changed the way that I saw the world and my place in it and my God. One of the things that's been significant for me as I've entered into motherhood is reflecting on some of the texts that talk about God and the feminine in the biblical tradition. So the idea of a God as a a nursing mother who won't forsake a child. And I think there's almost more flexibility and femininity in the tradition than at least was present in my upbringing. But I, I guess I wonder if you've connected with those texts or if those are things that you've thought about. During my years of residency training, which would have been the the early 90s, before I had my 
last two children. Um, I worked with mostly Hispanic patients at Valley Medical Center here in Fresno, the the most poor, the most disenfranchised population. And through them, I learned a lot about faith, faith in the Catholic tradition. Mm. And I found myself connecting with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a very important figure, as is um, traditional in the Catholic Church, but I hadn't been exposed to that much in the Mennonite Church. Mm-hmm. And um, especially the Virgen de, la, de Guadalupe, you know, the um, traditional, the the vision that Juan Diego had on the hillside outside of Mexico City and that patron mother of Mexico. That became very meaningful to me, and I built a little shrine in my home at that time, which I continue to have to this day, and where I do much of my praying at this point. And that shrine, although there's um, the Virgin is there, there's also many other symbols of my faith and expanded faith and world cultural traditions. But I think that was the first time where I started bringing the feminine into my faith. Mm. And it's the the women, the mothers that you were helping that sort of taught you about that. Mm-hmm. Mm, so again, that's, it's that's I've beautiful. learned much more from my my patients, my the women, the families that I've worked with, and I've given them. I'm sure that's how it feels to me. And then my mother, uh, Jean Jansen, who is a poet, a published poet, and quite recognized within the Mennonite community. She's done quite a bit of writing and speaking about God as feminine. She's written a hymn text, which is in many hymnals now, and is, she's kind of infamous for it, called Mothering God. The beautiful hymn that all through brings feminine characteristics and um, embodiment to God as woman. And mm. I love that hymn text. And I'd have to say that now I'm seeing, professionally even, but in my spiritual life as well, I'm not really seeing gender as a dichotomy anymore. I really don't think that we're man and woman outside of reproduction. I see us more as a spectrum of gender. And so that's been mind and heart opening for me too when I think about my God, that God doesn't have to be male or female, and in fact, I'm sure is not, um, that uh, it's beyond our understanding, and that doesn't have to be labeled with a gender or a sexual preference or um, that sort of label. Hmm. In fact, I've kind of made up my own version of in Christ there is no East or West, and it has in Christ there is no gay or straight, no woman or no man. One great fellowship of love across the whole wide land. Hmm. It's a a big picture of God that's very encompassing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So as you you just dropped your youngest off at college a couple weeks ago. And as you um, look forward to watching them flourish into young adulthood and adulthood, what are you most hoping that they carry with them from their time in your home? I hope that they know how to love. And I mean love in that the greater sense of that word, not just love someone special in their life or 
love their friends and family, but themselves, their place in the world, um, that they become good, loving, kind human beings with open hearts and open minds. Um, love in the biggest sense of the word. That's mm-hmm. what I want for my children. Hmm. Big, full love. So I've I've asked you about a lot of different things, but is there anything that um, you want to clarify or say more about or, or maybe something important that I just didn't ask you about? Well, I guess I, I could say a few more words about my cancer experience because it was really a life-changing experience for me. And um, something I learned from my, my surgeon and my, my gynecologic oncologist in the Bay Area, who is also a good friend of mine, she has a little phrase that she uses with her patients and was became meaningful to me that she says, thank the cancer. So mm-hmm. finding the gratitude for even things in your life that seem horrific or unsurvivable. And I found so many things to thank the cancer for, starting with, you know, thank the cancer that you don't have to be on call every third night and you get to sleep every night. Thank the cancer for more time with your children. Thank the cancer for teaching you that your friends really love you. And the list goes on and on and on. And... um I have to say, I feel so grateful to be alive and to wake up every morning and get to see what unfolds in this crazy world of ours Hmm. and this beautiful life of mine. Um, It really shook me out of a a different place where I was and uh, put my feet back on the ground um, with real gratitude. Hmm. and the ability to see the world anew again. Well, what a gift. Yes. Yeah. What a gift. Uh, kind of reawakening that big love, that big full love in my own heart and mind and body, loving hmm. my body for what it can do for me. Hmm. And I'm sure there's many, many life lessons, or I hope, there's many, many life lessons to come for me yet. Uh, I hope so, too. <laughs> more struggle, more conflict, I'm sure, but I'm just, I want to embrace every second that I have and um, be here hmm. to experience it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting Reimagined. If you like what you heard, visit our website, parentingreimagined.org, and sign up for our mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook. Thanks for taking the time to be part of this community of parents who's committed to learning the deeper lessons of parenting.